marriage, the reunification of the shattered image of God, the brokenness between men and women that was a part of the curse, the reunification of that through the blood of Christ is in fact the picture of the gospel on earth. He says, this is a great mystery. You're like, no joke, Paul. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here as always with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great. Doing great, Nick. Matt, I understand you're introducing your wife to some 80s classics. How's that going? I'm introducing my wife to our 80s in 90s movies because she was in Africa and didn't see any of them. So um, I remember like watching as a kid and loving uh, uh, Flash Gordon. Yeah. And so we watched it like two weeks ago. Man, that thing was like no, really sexually aggressive and oh, weird. Yeah. That movie was made for people to take drugs. That's why oh, it was made. Very strange. I mean, I showed a junior high youth group Teen Wolf once and it's like got full frontal nudity in it. And it's yeah. <laughs> rated PG for like 1983. Wait. Wait. What's going on here? <laughs> so my dad, so my dad when I was younger was the lobbyist for this, this ancient organization that no longer exists called Blockbuster Video. Um, and so he was in part, or it was like the movie, the, the video people of America or whatever it was. And so every Christmas we would get one of their um, swag boxes that have, you know, just full of videos and they weren't, they weren't edited for like people with small children. <laughs> so my parents would go through ostensibly, I think, go through and like try to pick out the ones that were clearly, you know, adult themed or whatever, but they didn't make all of them. And so we would scour this box and like, you know, uh, Which kind watch of- every movie from, from <laughs> beginning to end, hoping that somehow something salacious had made it through the, <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 the um, censors. And we found some things, but like, for instance, that like there's this movie, Doc Hollywood, also oh, PG, yeah. you know, Michael J. Flash, Fox. another one, like mm-hmm. these, these movies where you're watching them and you're like, oh, it's a happy, <laughs> full family fun. <laughs> and it's like, but of course, you know, that's our problem. It's not their problem. Right, like, right. We're the prudes. You know, we're the, we've been gaslit for a century now, a half a century. So we, we're, it yeah. is our problem. We are the prudes. We are the ones with the problem. You know, that's what we have to say, of course, because that's, that's what it is. You know, it can't be that we wanted to, um, you know, have some mystery about uh, someone else's body or some some. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There, there, there was some kind of campiness about it, though. It was like so. Like, you know, we, we also watched recently, you know, Fast Times at Richmond High, and like just some of those old like. I'm trying to be funny, but there's nudity stuck in, like boobs stuck in, like everywhere. Um, and it was, it was. It was. I'm not saying it was good. I think it's horrible, but but it there was there didn't seem to be the agenda. Uh, necessarily there that seems to be there today. I mean, today it's like a, it seems to be this plot to subvert the. Well, subvert at, le- at least in fast times, there are consequences. Yeah, yeah, huge consequences. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I mean I do think I agree with you. I mean I think that to the extent that you know movies can mirror something of the of the stage in life that they're out that they're looking for. You know, about it was about high school guys. You know, the the whole world that. Fast Times at Ridgemont High depicts is fairly accurate, and that's why it's endured, you know. But I think that I agree with you. I think that the the turn has has been made, and now it's it's not just like a sensuality or sort of a, a campy 
depiction of of what is true about life you know the sort of sexual interplay between men and women and and just kind of that that development but it's been explicitly sort of eroticized it seemed like yeah. you know like that have you been reading about that netflix series cuties you've been reading about yeah, this? Man, that just oh this is sickening I mean, I, you know, I, I, did, I mean, did you see what Netflix said about it. The, 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 I forgot there was a there was a screenshotted dialogue between um, I forgot who, but someone mm-hmm. wrote in complaining about the the series, and then then Netflix was kind of being cagey, and so this person wrote, "Well, are do you does Netflix approve of pedophilia? Yes or no?" And Netflix came back. Whoever it was on the other side of the computer writing for Netflix comes back and says, "Well." You know, we don't make any judgments about any anyone's morality. We just, which was, just, I mean, yeah. can you imagine? Do you agree? I mean, it's a very simple question. Do you agree with, do you think pedophilia is wrong? Well, you know, there's some nuance there. Yeah, man. It reminds me of that uh, Episcopal convention. I think it was 1982 uh, when Fitz Allison wanted to put up a resolution to reaffirm Article 6. You know, the Holy mm. Scriptures contain all things necessary for salvation. And somehow that <laughs> didn't, way didn't go through or something. <laughs> At least that's how it was told to me. I mean, someone may fact yeah. check that in real time. Um, but, uh, but at the very <laughs> least, it reminds me of that because, you know, it's uh, the failure to land the plane. But it is, it was really sort of disturbing. I mean, I think it's frightening how countercultural just what, you know, traditional, you know, Christian values are becoming and how rapidly, you know, I talked about this in a class the other day, because I got, I got upset. um, And I feel like we had spent so long in the sort of sophisticated mainline church world, which is just swallowing all this hook, line and sinker, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, and having been sort of you know, the term gaslit, we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. but just being sort of year after year, slowly being conditioned mm-hmm. to to not be appalled by something like that, you know, to not be to not be worried about the, the world that you're sending your own 11 year old daughter into, you know, <laughs> like, don't worry about it. Like, it's just, it's all a coming of age movie, you know. We'll seven. take care of her. That's we'll right. We will. That's right. We'll teach. Well, I think it's also fascinating. You've been reading the, bl- the blowback by the teachers that are worried about um, parents listening in on the, yeah. on their Zoom teaching that's fascinating also well they're not surprising like i used to come home from my uh western civ class which they can't teach anymore in 10th grade and the guy who was sort of a frustrated non-phd um academic you know so he like made it only as high as he could go and um may or may not have been a christian or at one point was a christian and no longer was and explicitly tried to turn the class into an anti-christian screed throwing things in like you know when um when the the roman uh you know i think that's where i first learned about um Pantera, you know, the guy that, that the sort of this myth, like I learned that in class. And so I'd come home and like complain to my parents and they would take me to the Christian bookstore and I'd buy all these like apologetics books to come back and start arguing with him. Um, now I didn't win, you know, he was in fact more educated than I was at the time, but it was a, um, it was an interesting look into the to- quote unquote academic freedom that, that we're now getting to look into via Zoom, you know, in these classes. Like I'd be interested in wanting to know, I think I'd probably look along, you know, especially if it was some class that was sort of, you know, like a philosophy class or like yeah, a, you know, know. contemporary ethics class or something. I think it'd be incumbent upon a parent to know what was going on in that class. But so now, and now everything's being recorded. <laughs> so we all, it's like Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon has actually happened. We're all being watched <laughs> all the time, recorded by the all seeing eye. And we're terrified of that because we're, we we're human beings, um, which is the perfect prison. He said, yeah. anyway, anyway. <laughs>
Well, you guys, the topic that we have chosen for ourselves today is the so-called nuclear family, an idea that needed no defense for, well, basically as long as the earth has existed and there have been people on it. Uh, but in the last several years, the idea of the nuclear family has come under attack. I first remember interacting with a negative view of the nuclear family as churches were trying to figure out how to deal with and minister to single people. Singles felt left out of a church life that seemed to revolve around families. And public evangelicals began to refer to the, quote, idolatry of the nuclear family, noting that neither Jesus nor Paul uh, were married. But even those evangelicals wouldn't have called the nuclear family a bad thing, which is, in fact, what's happening now. Uh, Black Lives Matter, for instance, says explicitly that they intend to disrupt quote, the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement, defining what we might call the traditional family as a kind of oppressive societal norm that's not founded on anything that's objectively true. And other non-traditional family structures have seen much broader acceptance in culture today, notably same-sex headed family groups. But of course, it's not all roses on the nuclear family disruption front. There was a recent article in the New York Times about the challenges of polyamorous parenting. So guys, let's start where all Christians should start these conversations with the Bible. What does God say about the nuclear family? Is it an institution worth defending? Well, I mean, I think, I think you can go back to Genesis 1. Right. All the way to the beginning. <laughs> when God creates human beings, he created us male and female. And in Genesis 2, uh, we have the first first family established when God, uh, I guess the, the, the scope zooms in in Genesis 2 to how exactly God created man. And he takes from Adam's side and, or rib, however you want to translate that text, makes a woman, brings her to the man. And it is that point that Jesus refers back to in Matthew 19, when he's asked the question about divorce, when he's defining what marriage is, he goes right back to that first coming together of Adam and his wife and says, this is what it is. This is, this is, this is God joining together a man right. and a woman. And this is what all marriages ought to be modeled after. So I think we've just, this is foundational and it's not just foundational to the family structure. It's, it's foundational to, to the gospel because Paul tells us in Ephesians five, that all of that in Genesis chapter two, when a, when a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, that that's a great mystery. And it refers to Paul says the church, the, the love of Christ for his church. So what we're, what's at stake here is not just the question of, you know, whether, whether our civil civilization crumbles because we can no longer define what the foundational family structure is, but also the, the, the very vehicle that God designed to, to proclaim Christ and his love to the world is 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 threatened by this new new thought. So yeah, I mean, I think I think the nuclear family is is core. Now, uh, one last thing about it, let's jump in here, JD. But so uh, nuclear family, I think we've we've kind of defined that as man, woman, children. And of course, when you look through scripture, the understanding of what a family was is 
broader in the sense that typically people in the ancient world would not just live together with man, woman, and children. You'd have grandparents right. and uncles and cousins and whatever, everybody would living, living together. But the foundational core would be the man and the woman and the children. That's how the, that's how you get the extended family is, is by, by man, woman, and children. Yeah. That was a strange, I don't know if you read that article, uh, it must maybe a year ago now, um, BM before masks there, it's all a little blur <laughs> now, but, um, but, uh, but when David Brooks talked about the end of the nuclear family, yeah. uh, I don't know if that was the title of it. And it was interesting to me that he, he didn't appreciate that distinction uh, that you just made, Matt, that when we talk about the nuclear family, we're not actually just specifically saying a father, a mother, and, you know, 2.5 children. Like we're actually arguing for the, for the organic family, I would argue, you know, something like this. And it was an interesting, because his, his whole argument was that what we're going to need in the future is what you just described, uh, a family with a, with a network of aunts and uncles and grandparents, and, and that we've, we've lost that to a certain degree. And he was bemoaning that, but saying that that was what the new normal was. And so I was reading, I just, just as an aside, I think that was a, I think there was an opportunity to, um, I think he missed um, some of the, maybe the nuances of what, what you were saying about what the Bible at least depicts as, as what is being called the nuclear family includes you know, honoring your father and mother, honoring your grandfather and grandmother, you know, honoring, honoring the, the extended networks that you have. Um, but I think, you know, it goes even deeper than, um, than just marriage. It goes to the very question of the identity of God, you know, because this is part of the argument of the Bible, uh, you know, is that God is not a monad, you know, is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that the reflection of that relationship on earth in by his own attestation is male and female that he created neither male nor female it's not that god is a man or a woman but that in this relation of male female relation we see something of the interrelation something of the interrelation of the trinity itself and so when we look at male female relation and then when they become procreators you know with god you know and joining the two to become one flesh um you picture however veiled you know however incomplete for our own finite uh, minds but nevertheless the picture of the image of god on earth was given as this relationship between men and women that's why paul talks about like you said in ephesians 5 the the marriage the reunification of the shattered image of god the brokenness between men and women that was a part of the curse the reunification of that through the blood of christ is in fact the picture of the gospel on earth he says this is a great mystery you're like no joke paul uh, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless that's what we preach and that's what we teach and that's why any alteration of this or, or certainly in any direct Direct assault on it is a uh, time when Christians need to really um, be be aware of what is being being offered as an alternative because it's something decidedly not Christian. Yeah, since marriage is that picture, it's that it's it's meant to be a, a picture of Christ in His church. Any other formulation besides a man and a woman necessarily corrupts the gospel. So you have, uh, it tells a lie about who Jesus is or tells a lie about what the church is supposed to be. So you have uh, a woman maybe who has two husbands um, that, that says that the church has two lords. This is the church has two gods, two different persons to whom she submits to. Uh, you have uh, a man with two wives. And I know that we can go back and talk about the prayer. We'll have to talk about we should. that polygamy in the old uh, under the old um, covenant when a man has two wives that also tells a, a lie about um about the gospel that christ has two he's not faithful to one bride um so any other formulation has dramatic effects at, and implications for for um the gospel picture that god 
is painting. When the Lord chooses for himself a people, when he comes to Abraham, he makes a family. The existence of Hagar and Ishmael is the result of that family's unfaithfulness, their lack of ability to believe that the Lord will keep his promise to this family, this nuclear family, husband, wife, and child that he has promised them. They say, well, we're going to need to take this into our own hands and make a non-nuclear family. We're going to bring in another woman, have another child, and that's the result of sin and unfaithfulness. That's, that's not the kind of family that the Lord was intending to create when he decided to make for himself a people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's right, exactly right. That the, 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 Paul contrasts those two when yeah. he's talking about, about the difference between the, the gospel of human work, which is Hagar, and the, and the slave uh, woman, and the and the gospel of grace, which is which is what God um, meant meant to pro, uh, prefigure with Abraham and Sarah. But I mean, the, the, look, polygamy first enters into the into the record in the scriptures through the line of Cain. Um, and Lamech with his two wives, we boast about, and I think it's in uh, Genesis four, uh, Genesis five or four, one of those. Um, and 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 since from that point of time, you do have you know uh, patriarchs and people within the, the the covenant of Israel having having more than one wife and then concubines included uh, in some cases. And what we, we what I want to tell people when they point to this and say, well, come on, you talk about, you know, biblical family values. Yeah. <laughs> what about Jacob? <laughs> Jacob. I want to say is, hey, look, okay, first of all, you don't find any condoning of this. There's no, there's no, this is a good, God never says from heaven, this is what I want. This is great. This is good, a, a good thing. And second of all, you see uh, negative consequences shot through. Third of all, even in the, even in the old covenant law, what you find is interesting is that a lot of the sexual choices and avenues that ancient people had begun to take were are being kind of narrowed down by the by the law. The law is is whittling down the options that are uh, that are available for the faithful Israelite. And then, and then we mentioned it earlier, but when the new covenant comes along, or when Jesus comes along, and and he's teaching on marriage, and the Pharisees who are arguing about it. About divorce, try to point back to Moses's instructions with regard to divorce. Jesus isn't having any of it with regard to sex, human sexuality. It was only to restrain hardened hearts. It was only to keep you from doing the worst you could possibly do and protect all those involved. Jesus says, "No, the the real truth, the real goodness that God intended for uh, human sexuality is found right back there in the garden. That's why God made male and That's female right. so that they could be joined together in one." unit with one uh, just male just one male or female okay, you you look back at the old testament and you see people wrestling with god um as sinners and and his mercies in the midst of that um but finally feel, reaching their culmination in the teaching and preaching of jesus you know you see that all through the sermon on the mount you know he takes all of the ideas that have been going around and, and puts a fine point on them pointing towards ultimately what would be his the necessity for him to take upon um, the sins of the world and then send us out uh, to baptize, you know, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I think um, 
yeah, I mean, that's how you sort of not understand it, but that's how we just observe this, this development throughout the, the calling of Abraham to the culmination and Jesus and his teaching on marriage. You know, it's funny to me that they talk about this even in, you know, the New York Times, um, uh, this article that we were talking about, about polyamory, um, as the quote-unquote biblical um, idea. It says, for most, for most of human history, this is a quote from the article called The Poly Parent Households Are Coming by Deborah Spar. Um, it's a quote from the article. For most of human history, after all, families across the Western world were defined in largely bi- biblical terms. One man, one woman, with children conceived through sex and sanctified by marriage. Everyone else was just a bastard. Well, that's, that's going to uh, give you an indication of where that's headed. But, um, and then she talks about how things begin to change, as we've mentioned before in other podcasts, is a combination of, uh, she writes this, uh, in the 1960s, is a combination of shifting mores, accurate paternity tests, greater access to contraception. All these prodded the courts in the United States and elsewhere to expand the legal definition of parenting to include genetic relationships regardless of marital status, and so on and so forth. Then she talks about the... the um, the new uh, reproductive technologies, which are quite frightening, um, which is that you can actually somehow, and I'm no scientist here, but you can take two cells from the same person and somehow create a human being from the same person, according to this new technology, IG, um, IVG uh, is what it's called. And it's, sounds um, that's literal self-worship and idolatry, right? <laughs> like creating out of yourself alone. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And it's, and it's being celebrated, of course, because then we can finally realize Aldous Huxley's, you know, dystopic dream where we don't ever have mothers. You know, again, I talk about this book all the time now, but it's really quite <laughs> that mother was a bad word in this book. You know, it was embarrassing. It was talking about like a, a foreign world that, uh, that, that no longer fathers and mothers were bad words. And that was what he saw was going to be the final end of this reproductive sort of revolution. And that's what's being argued is that, you know, the idea of a father and a mother is going to be quaint and outdated. You know, even in this article, the other article called The Challenges of Poly Parenting that you mentioned, Nick, it has benefits section at the end. And one of the benefits is that the kids come home and say, isn't it sad that Sally only has two parents? You know, they don't get the joy or, or you know, one of the mothers said that this is so great because now I have more time for me. You know, so because you know you can spread out the parental duties. You know, you get it's my you only day have to off. A, you, only have to, you only have to change a diaper once every three weeks because we have seventy-two people living in this commune, and only one child. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? That's so ironic that at the bottom of it, it comes back to it means more time for me, which is the same idea as taking two cells from an individual. Like this is all the first thing that the Lord said after he said, this creation is good. The next thing was, it's not good for man to be alone. That's right. And both of these seemingly wildly different things, creating life from an individual and polyamory, are both ultimately saying, actually, I think it would be better if I was by myself a little more. Right. Yeah. Mind you, you guys remember those articles that were you know, big in the I think 90s when divorce rates were soaring? Uh, well, you know, if, if you're not happy, your children will be happy. So, you know, if you're, if you're not happy with your relationship, then clearly the, the best thing to do for the shit children yeah. is, is to, to break and tear apart that family. And that's been 
even even secularists now, I think, are seeing that that's a bad argument. But you see the same kind of straining here in this New York Times article you're you're referencing that, oh, you know, it's just uh, the, the kids are are going to be fine. There's no studies that say anything's wrong with this. Uh, we're going to be we're going to be great. I and mean, you just have to wonder what's what is the New York Times definition of a happy childhood, of a good childhood? What, what does that mean? What do they? How do they understand that? Do they mean that the child is healthy physically? Do they mean that the child is going to school? Do they mean that the child has friends? And if that's all they're applying, sure. And including yeah. being exposed to these wonderful progressive ideas. That's right. that's where I, yeah, I think that's the key here. Is I think in the the paradigm the New York Times is using, that's a healthier way. Right. The fact that, of it that the child being exposed. I think they use an example toward the end of the article of of one family and one polyamorous family moving purposefully into a cultural context in which their children would be exposed to gay families and straight families and polyamorous families so that the child could see that family was really however you want to define it. Um, whereas for us, and I think not just for us, but as God has established things in creation, um, that by definition, whether the kid's well-fed and physically healthy and has lots of friends, doesn't matter because what that kid is the, the environment in which the kid is being raised is one in which a lie is being told about god right. and about the self and so it's manifestly doesn't no matter how happy the kid is it's bad for the child that's right well and back to the divorce rates i mean i have i was looking for this book in my library i can't find it right now but the you know they there've been people of tracking the children of divorce uh, since the mid 70s and there's this you know it's a long one of the longest sort of longitudinal um, psychological studies done and the results are in and it's not good. You know, I mean, I use this, this, um, that the, the kids, but what happened was, you know, children essentially were being raised in this lie that it's better for you. It's better for everyone. If, if, you know, daddy marries his secretary son. Um, but you know, children have to cope and have to eventually become apologists for their parents, you know, I mean, they, and then, so they spend their entire lives essentially having to defend this lie and then they get to a point where they they stop lying you know usually with the help of a therapist or um or something and they get angry you know and this is what's happened and this is what the book's about and again it doesn't mean that there's no redemption for divorced people i mean everyone you know everyone every other person it doesn't mean it's like we talked about with abortion it doesn't mean that there's any any broken uh sinful reality that can't be redeemed but let's not if, if we don't if we don't confess or we, we sort of euphemize it um then then it can't be brought to light and therefore it can't be healed. And that's what's being argued in all this is it's going to be fine. You know, mommy and daddy want to be, you know, like back in raising Arizona swingers, HI, meaning to swing. <laughs> Remember they are, you know, don't worry kids. It'll be totally normal. And in fact, you know, grandpa would have thought weird about this, but he's, he's long gone and he was kind of uptight anyway. And he had his problems, kids. So like, and we're doing this for you. Yeah. We're doing it for you. And that's a kid right. will translate that very quickly into, you're the reason this is happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, well, and that's what, you know, it's funny. For, so in the church, you know, this is what's going to be interesting because I've, I've seen intimations of this in the church, you know, that, like you said, Nick, uh, in the beginning, when we talk about, uh, you know, dealing with singleness or whatever, but there's there are prominent Christian leaders who warn about the quote idolatry of the nuclear family. Um, and somehow, uh, you know, imp, like you said before, 
And I, I'm interested, or at least I'm concerned about how quickly that argument can gain traction um, within, uh, you know, Christian circles. And I think it's in part because, you know, we get into this situation where we, we want to be compassionate, we want to be, um, you know, empathetic, we want to be forgiving and non-judgmental, like all that, you know, that everyone knows Christians are supposed to be, you know, particularly non-Christians. Um, and yet we find ourselves confronted with this, this reality of, of broken lives and broken people and and the the challenge for us is going to be as always to to preach the law and the gospel you know to have the admonitions in the bible like paul says in roman i mean first corinthians it says very clearly if you are a widow or if you're celibate single then that's fine stay like that but if you can't control yourself you're not celibate then you should get married you know so of all these single people in these in these groups like if you're celibate if you're called to celibacy praise god you have so much more time right you know, you have more time, you'll have more money, <laughs> you'll have more, you know, that's fine. I mean, that's a great gift. I mean, I, I imagine that would be a great gift if you just could take that idea out of your head. But for 99, seemingly 99.9% of the people, that hasn't been a gift given. And therefore, um, the message to to single people, according to the Bible, is that, well, if you're if you're burning, then the the fire the fire can be in the fireplace, you know, um, as the old youth group adage goes. And but that's a hard word. You know, it's like John chapter six. Like this is a tough teaching. Who can stand it? And it's, some it, disciples left. Yeah. It, one of the reasons it's hard is because, and I'm not sure if this is true of you guys, but it's certainly true for me where I either was taught explicitly or sort of imbibed implicitly the idea that there was one woman out there that God had chosen for right. me. And uh, that that's one reason actually not to get married for fear of marrying the wrong person. Maybe this isn't the person that God oh, right, chose right, for right. me. Right. And then it's also a reason to get divorced when you're like, well, gosh, my secretary seems to understand me in a way that my wife doesn't. <laughs> right. And she's very <laughs> compassionate. And so like you're, you're constantly like shifting where the crosshairs of your quote unquote love is aiming because maybe, maybe I just haven't met the person that God has chosen for me. And I saw this tweet, not from anybody well known, not from a public Christian, just from a re regular person. I've, I'm, I'm sure that somebody well-known retweeted it or else I wouldn't have seen it. But the tweet said, how can the church serve singles? Well, uh, the church can introduce them to other singles who That's they right. might That's get right. married to. <laughs> Well, you're going to make some people mad if you well, say that. Well, I was going to say, that's a hard teaching, but I think that it's actually true. Yeah, I had a conversation with someone once who was complaining to me that um, the, a certain person left the church because we were too focused on, on married people. And, you know, we weren't, we weren't catering to the, the singles and, you know, being in compassion. And I said, well, you know, I said something along those lines, which, um, you know, I was like, well, I'm happy. I was always looking out. You know, I, was, I thought I was taking care of care of this person i was always looking for someone to introduce them to you know <laughs> like, that's what I, and that well, was offensive and i said listen i don't think the reason that they're upset is because of me you know i think that in fact part of the part of the the sadness of loneliness of life for single people is that it's not good for man to be alone you know and that's a reality and so we try to fulfill that loneliness um even with other people outside of the uh, the bonds of marriage and right. we find you know there's Actual a certain friendship. expediency to that but it's not it's not what god is it's not the the good that god has has given us to to preach and to teach for sure um and so i think that's where 
you know, with, when we talk to young people, even, I mean, I, I was just like you, Nick, uh, that I think that, that, um, you know, the youth group culture, at least did had this sort of romanticized idea of marriage that would come someday and answer all of your questions. And now all of your, you know, your wildest dreams would come true. Just You'd wait. You'd be perfectly hear, you know. satisfied. That's right. And I think that, um, you know, in the future, what we're going to look at is particularly as, as kids get, you know, sort of contrary messages, we should say about what it, the, purpose of human sexuality is I think we're going to have to revisit all of the that teaching and come back to a more biblical understanding of it which is that it's one not good for man to be alone and two that these are this is a help meet you know this is a helpful um, sort of redemptive relationship that that comes as a devotional um, confession about who God is and what the purposes of our bodies and lives are for and so that can be done with a variety of people you know I mean there's no I think this is sort of um, I mean I tell Liza all the time you you know, if something happens to me, I'm, I, you know, the only thing I'll be worried about is that we have so many kids, but, um, but, you know, I'm hoping that she'll get remarried, you know, for her sake. I thought so you were headed can. the other way. I tell Liza all the time, if something happens to you, it's going to take me like three or four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I do know that if something happened to her, I would have to live in a hotel for a little while. Because, <laughs> I would have I can't to have imagine. someone else take care of the, I mean, I can't imagine Ann ever being remarried. She'll probably join a monastery because how could you want to marry anyone else after me? It just doesn't That's make sense. right. <laughs> well, that is the great, nar- you know, if we had a yeah. theologian friend of ours who <laughs> talked about the male, one of the narcissistic problems of men is among many, is that we always assume, you know, we are the, we are the knights that like the world will, the access of the world will shift once I die, you know, and like the real, uh, so, it, so it's all of the, you know, it goes back to Tom Sawyer. Remember like he uh, got to watch his own funeral, you know, it's kind of like oh, yeah. what we all yeah, want yeah. to do so we can see who actually would show up. <laughs> anyway. One thing I think that, okay, so some sympathy here for, for the kind of a reaction against the the nuclear family from on the part of the evangelicals and I, and I think in the maybe the 90s early 2000s there was a focus in the family that i think may have overshadowed the gospel that, that you know you, you had focus in the family as a, <laughs> as a organization. Focus on the family. So, so and you listen to christian radio but with the talk shows and uh, different terms and Family, 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 family. It was it was a pretty constant drumbeat, if I remember, if I remember correctly. I was just coming into the Christian world um, in the mid '90s, and that I remember that being a huge focus of just about everything I would hear on the radio. And then you know, with the seeker-sensitive model of the church, where you preach about practical problems, you, it would not be uncommon to have like a ten-week series on on marriage. You know, so you you grew up, you're you're single. Uh, you haven't found your quote unquote soulmate yet <laughs> and, and yeah. you're, you're 30 something. And then you hear, uh, Oh, we're going to now have 10 weeks on, on, on marriage, which great. is also or, 10 or, weeks of not hearing the gospel. Right. Right. Or 10 weeks on sex or something like that, you know? So great. Now we're going to go through. So, so I think there was maybe a, a over focus on that. At the same time, I hear you, Jade, even if you have 90% of the people in your congregation, you're going to have to talk, talk about it in, in some way, in some venue. But I think the balance can be achieved by, one, churches preaching through books of the Bible, where, where yeah, marriage comes up, singleness comes up, but the gospel is always there. Right. Um, and two, keeping the focus on, on the gospel. I think, I think that if that's always the focus, I don't care whether you're single or whether you're married whether you're divorced or whatever it is, you're going to be, you're going to hear what you need to hear. You're going to be fed by, by Christ with that kind of preaching. 
Yeah, I, I agree totally. And I think, you know, I mean, I grew up then too in the 90s. Um, and there was a lot of, I think, you know, reaction, as you said before, to the rising divorce rates, particularly like within the church. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's every every action there's a over equal op- overreaction <laughs> but i also equal over i also see in the church what part of the problem and this is not to beat up on men um but uh, more to the pastors is there are too few pastors that are that are discipling younger men in particular um towards this end you know that they're sort of either tiptoe around the fact that you've got the 26 year old who's sort of serially dating all of the uh, women in your church and yet remaining you know celibate of course you know wink wink um, you're not you're not challenging that guy to settle down. So I think there's a there's a reluctance to talk about that to the to the men. And at the same time, there's this perpetual, um, still sort of romanticized view of Christian marriage within evangelical churches, at least, that um, that continues to have people hold out for the the perfect one. You know, I'm just seeing this over and over again. Is that you know this is the, you know, it didn't work for me. Well, what was wrong? Well, they were Christian. You know, they wanted to get married. They we shared the same values. We liked the same church. We have all these things, but it just wasn't right. You like, really liked Adam Sandler movies. Yeah, you're like, what else uh, are, are we looking for here? And I get it, like, you know, when you're, uh, I mean, I can say as someone that was married young to someone that I, you know, that I would I would have probably renounced the faith um, in order to marry. Um, <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> but anyway, but I love her. And um, so, I, you know, maybe it sounds like I'm talking um, on, um, with, without compassion, but I, but I see the, the alternatives to this, you know, the alternatives to, um, to trust in God for uh, in this, in this structure, you know, male uh, husband and wife and children and family, the alternative sort of life that, that spins out of control, you know, that, that, that has a, um, isn't grounded in this way. It's not what God intended. I mean, that's, and you talk about the gospel, Matt, is it the, you know, the sort of the, the training ground for uh, refining and redemption is coming to grips with the fact that you actually only love yourself, despite what you said on the day of your vows, and that having that uh, slowly pried, you know, your, your hands slowly pried off of yourself by the necessity to take care of someone else, to love your neighbor, you know, ultimately to, to change their diapers and things, you know, this is the, this is the, 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 the training ground for the refine or the, the, the refining fire of God in the life of a, of a sinner. And again, it doesn't have to happen in marriage. It's not saying that if you're not married, you're not a full human, but if you are a um, non-celibate human, then the trajectory of your life should be to uh, listen to your friends who love you and go out, um, you know, go meet some people so that it's, it won't be good for you to be alone. I mean, that's, that's, and that's, I don't know if that's a harsh teaching. Like I, I think it sounds like a hopeful teaching. Like if I showed up at, someone showed up at our church and, and was lonely and was a Christian and wanted to be, um, you know, uh, enter into this uh, uh, union, you know, the marital union, like I would, I would consider that a, a, a sort of an obligation to help that, you know, like, well, it's okay. Well, let's, I think that's a good, you know, that's a good desire. Um, it may not be realized. And of course we know people for whom it hasn't been, and that will be a, a, a place where we can mourn together, but there's also opportunity for us to perhaps celebrate together. So why don't you come over this Friday and we'll have dinner with some, some of our other friends and just see what happens. You know, I don't I mean, again, I mean, maybe I, I'm, I'm sounding like Andy Griffith or something, right? <laughs> you know, I'm sounding like, I'm sounding there like, ah, oh, you old, you old, get you off my lawn. No, I, mean, I think <laughs> what you're talking about is a real, I had, I had, a guy came into our church, young guy, 20s, um, thought he was called to celibacy. Of course, he was 
totally into porn. <laughs> well, that's, that's your first indication. Your first indication. You're not called a celibacy. <laughs> you know, you know, I love you, but <laughs> I think you're really not called a celibacy. Uh, I, I, uh, I like what you said earlier, JD, about the about the some of the objective qualities that you want to look for in a spouse. Is this person a Christian? Is this person have a is this person responsible? Is this person honest? Because I think part of the, I'm looking for the special unicorn uh, person, it comes along with the the new, and it's new historically, maybe not new for us personally, but new in a historical long breadth sense of that word, this new sense that you have to be romantically in love before before you can settle on a, on a spouse. I mean, I think I'm, I'm in love with my wife, I would never say otherwise. Um, and I was when I first met her, but but historically that was not the. It was you. You could be in love with her, but you didn't have to be. And ultimately, that romance would grow once you were married. But that wasn't the first thing you're looking for. You're looking for stability, respectability, honesty, character things that that direct your choice. And while I'm not saying marrying the person you're love in love with is bad, I think it's great but but I, I think that that the focus on romance and in marriage as the as the thing if you're in love boy that's that's the deciding factor i think that's in a lot of damage ultimately yeah and when you take what's fascinating if you read the the literature you know of these um it's called uh what's it called migtow you know men going their own way there's a whole like literature underground literature about this and i i found out this with a theologian friend of mine and I listened to his um, podcast about um, sort of just sort of hyper masculine movements and things. And essentially what it is, is that men are saying, you know, we, we've looked at marriage now and we don't want it. We don't want um, the responsibility. We don't want, you know, there's, there's something called consensual non-monogamy. You know, there's like a thing that's like a, I mean, talk about a euphemism for swinging H.I., you know, you're going to go watch Raising Arizona again, Nick, and you get all these jokes. I just watched it last week, actually. <laughs> but, you know, this, this, there's, this, there's this movement where men are basically saying, okay, you've told us now. We have Tinder. We have, you know, Grindr. We got all these whatever they are, these apps, um, Bumble. I mean, the list goes on. We've got all these things, and it's perfectly fine and respectable for us to use them. Uh, we don't have to get married. Children are really a, a drain, you know, um, and they might even turn up to be something I have to take more care of they may not be like you know the nobel peace prize winner or something um so we're just gonna we're gonna play that game and so what's happening is that respect to this this sort of romance thing that some guys are better than others at um playing this game you know and it's not mm -hmm. necessarily mm -hmm. about looks you know there's some guys and so there's been books written about this like how to go into a bar and come home with you know 17 swipe rights or whatever <laughs> and that's um that is the logical end of this detaching um, sort of God from the whole the whole relation between men and women, because ultimately the curse was the fact that that we we were in we were enemies with each other. You know that we would take what we could from the other, and that that's what we're seeing. And so we're seeing that the when the redemptive aspect of a male female relation is is taken away, well then we return back to the to the the primal fall reality, which is that we are um, you know we are zero sum. Like I'm going to take something from you, and you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna try to get something from me, and we're gonna reach an equilibrium here, but it's not what God intended for the actual uh, sort of redemptive picture of, of marriage, because that was the picture of the gospel. 
you know, forgiveness, this, this, this self-sacrificial, forgiving, redemptive love shown to us by Christ was the self-sacrificial, redemptive, giving love between a man and a woman. Um, and without Christ as the foundation, well, then we should be unsurprised that it turns into a, um, uh, a, a battle, you know, the battle of the sexes, you know, like Billie Jean King and, um, and Jimmy Connors, you know, except with swords and, and laser beams. <laughs> I guess we, I guess we're going to end on Billy Jean King and Jimmy Connors, even though it was actually Billy Jean King and Bobby Riggs. But this is a long and, as you can tell, so you uh, <laughs> conversation with tendrils flowing in so many different directions. As is our custom, we have come to the end of our time with more to say. Um, please, if you would like to join the conversation, I hope you will. So you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. You can send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. We do so appreciate you spending time with us today. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon. We'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.